Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. On this episode of Tell Me, I'm speaking with Adam Grant. Adam is an organizational psychologist and a TED speaker. His latest book is called Think Again, The Power of Knowing What You Don't Know, actually inspired me to do this podcast. He talks in this book about the power of rethinking what we think we already know and how important it is to reframe the way we think about things. And it's a practice that I think we all could benefit from how to be more mindful and how to see things from different points of view. We don't necessarily have to agree. I really enjoyed our conversation and I hope you do as well. Adam Grant is here. I'm going to try to act and contain my excitement. I'm really happy to meet you. I'm a huge fan. Oh, I'm honored. I've been watching you for a long time. So the enthusiasm is mutual. Oh my goodness. Okay. So I'm sure you have things you want to ask me too. (laughs) Be careful what you wish for. So I actually have a story to tell you. Your last book that you wrote, Think Again, is my favorite. I mean, honestly, I could speak to you for 19 hours about all of the books and all of the podcast episodes, but let's just stick to Think Again so I can keep it in an hour. I had read it in the spring or early summer, and then I was thinking about you know whether or not I would do this podcast. And then this morning when I was on my hike, I was re-listening to your book on tape, and I thought, oh my goodness. Adam Grant actually inspired me to do this podcast, and I had completely forgotten. You know, you read information, you read a book, it all drops in, and then you sort of go about your day and you think about something else. But it was incredible that today I was reminded that you were actually a huge part of my inspiration for doing this podcast. So how do you like them apples? (laughs) I'm honored. (laughs) I hope you don't regret it, is my main reaction. Now, there's a funny term in psychology for, I think, what you're describing. It's called kleptomnesia. It's when you accidentally sort of take in an idea and forget where it came from, and it starts to become your own. And I I think we all do that all the time. And to me, it's really unlikely that my work was the only or even main reason that you decided to go forward with this show. But it's exciting that you're now bringing all these other voices into the conversation, you know, sort of picking up on that idea of listening and complexifying conversations. So I'm thrilled to be part of it. And you can tell me after season one whether you're glad you did it. (laughs) I certainly will. You know, it depends on the day of how much I'm enjoying it. And that brings me to one question that I wanted to ask you. You talk about something, I think it's in chapter 10, where you talk about assumptions, making assumptions and how assumptions can really hurt. And you, you cite an example of this Italian astronaut, Luke Parmitano. Do you want to tell the story of him? Yeah. So I didn't know it was possible for an astronaut to almost drown. 
and neither did Luca, but he was on a, a mission off the space station. He was tethered to it, and he started to notice that there was something wet in his helmet, which is sort of an unusual sensation because outer space is dry. And he did what I think any astronaut would first do. He stuck out his tongue because you can't open the helmet. And it sort of had a metallic flavor to it. And they'd had an issue with his drink bag, I think, about a week before. And he assumed it was, you know, the same issue, not a big deal. But then all of a sudden, his helmet starts to fill up with water. And it becomes clear that he can't breathe. And it's a very harrowing escape where he has to essentially, without being able to see, turn upside down, pull himself back along the tether to try to get into the airlock and then have his fellow astronaut get him out of the suit in time so that he can actually survive. It's a near miss. He makes it. But if you rewind, the assumption was the drink bag was actually the cause of the problem. And once they fixed what was wrong with it, then our work here is done. And we don't need to worry about it anymore. It turned out that there was a much bigger problem with the suit that nobody had even bothered to ask the question. And so they did this whole reanalysis of, you know, how do we solve problems at NASA, which in some ways is something they already knew how to do from the space shuttle explosions that they dealt with in the past. But one of the critical questions that they learned to ask was, how do you know? So when, when someone says, oh, you know, it may just be a leak from the, the bag, you know, we'll make sure that the bag is fortified. How do you know that's the cause? And the moment somebody asks that question, how do you know, you realize you don't know and you need to go explore it further. And I think that that, it's a great example of a question that opens the conversation up for people to question themselves and each other. I think it really matters how you ask it. (laughs) You know, how do you know (laughs) does not not elicit a lot of curiosity, but like, tell me more. Like, how do you know? Where did that perspective come from? I think it's something we should probably be asking ourselves and each other more than we do. I think you're so right in that. And what comes to mind is playing a doctor for so long. Wait, you you play a doctor? I do. <laughs> I can't wait to tell my sister that Meredith Grey read my book. She's going to flip out. Oh, my goodness. What's your sister's name? Tracy. We have to shout her out. Hey, Tracy, how you doing? Is she as smart as you? I think it depends who you ask. <laughs> I think she, she would dodge the question and say, she's more creative. No question there. Oh, I'll get to that. I love that topic of creativity. And that sort of ties into another thing you speak a lot about, which is emotional intelligence. So for a moment, back to assumptions. In medicine, you know, assuming that they know that the patient is presenting with a very specific set of symptoms, you could make a lot of assumptions based on those symptoms. However, if the patient is not responding to treatment, then we have to go back and ask, how do you know it's that? And you've heard about people with, you know, MS or Lyme's disease being diagnosed with 50 other things before they actually believe that it's Lyme disease because they're presenting as something different or people thinking they have MS when they really have Lyme disease or, you know, vice versa. So the other piece of assumptions is something happened to me yesterday and I tried to put into practice not assuming. So the scenario was this. I was meant to have a business phone call. And I was sort of avoiding the phone call because I thought that I knew what the outcome was going to be. And I thought I knew exactly how the people were going to behave, what they were going to say, the opinions they were going to have. And so I canceled the call three times. And then I said to myself, well, that's not being very open-minded. And that's not giving people a chance to surprise you. And so I scheduled the call. And at the top of the call, something was said very briefly in jest that really reaffirmed like, oh, it's going to go exactly the way I thought it was originally. 
And I sort of warned against it. And then eventually, 30 minutes later, 45 minutes later, the call went exactly where I knew it was going to go. And I was crushed. And I had to go for, I don't run because I have asthma, so I just walk. (laughs) But I had to go for a walk. I had to get out of the house. I almost threw up, to be honest. And I've been asking myself since last night, why was my reaction so emotional? And obviously, I've been very lucky in that I found a way to monetize my emotion and acting is a great vehicle for me. I'm a very emotional person. But I asked myself, why was I so emotional? Knowing that the people on the phone that I'm speaking to think a certain way, right? Business people, number-minded people, people who may not be on the larger spectrum of emotional intelligence, who may just be of more analytical mind, knowing that that's how they think anyway, why am I so devastated at the comments? And the answer is, I gave someone a chance to surprise me. I wanted to go against my own assumptions, and I thought I was doing the right thing and the thinking again and being open-minded, and I was let down and disappointed. And that made me fall harder. And so as much as I love the topic of assumptions, I do think if we practice having an open mind and try not to assume things, when we are disappointed, it kind of feels like a double gut punch. Do you agree? Ooh, I think I do agree. First of all, I take full responsibility for your (laughs) intensified emotions. Blame me. It's my fault. I think that assumptions aren't always invalid. And I think this is one of the things that people get wrong about rethinking. Rethinking does not mean you always change your mind. It means that you've done the work of reconsidering. And so what worries me is when people make assumptions without knowing they're making them, without pausing to figure out whether they're true or whether, as Brene Brown would say, this is just a story they're making up. And you did that work up front, right? You, you did the rethinking. And I think you had concluded that your assumptions were probably valid, but you, you wanted to be, it sounds like, more magnanimous. You wanted to give someone a chance to surprise you. And yeah, I think that most emotions are a function of our expectations being violated. And once you allowed yourself to expect that this call could go better, you set yourself up for a bigger gap between what you wanted and hoped for and what really happened, and that does hurt. I would also say that when it comes to the richness of experiences that you have in life and the quality of relationships you build, in the long run, I think the strategy you chose is still a better one. It probably hurt more in the moment, but I think that it doesn't always end up being a self-fulfilling prophecy. It doesn't always end up being a sore disappointment. And I think that if you never give anyone a chance, right, no one pleasantly surprises you, uh, (laughs) and you live in a pretty narrow world. Good point. Very good point. It also, I think, solidifies your intuition or your confidence in your intuition in some way, because... If we have experiences that make us doubt our intuition, then we really feel lost, right? But even if these moments are in some way negative, we can come back around once we've gotten over the initial gut punch. We can come back around and say, well, that just affirms my intuition, right? And believing in your intuition does give you a form of self-confidence and does, I think, lead into some degree of emotional intelligence, You speak a lot about this, and I just also this morning re-listened to your podcast episode about emotional intelligence. Oh, with Merve Emre. Yes, Merve, yeah. So I know you do believe in emotional intelligence, and I've listened to a lot of things you've said about it, and I believe strongly in it. I also believe that biologically some people just don't have the capacity for emotional intelligence. Like they're strictly just numbers people and— 
do you think everyone has the capacity for emotional intelligence or could learn it if they were exposed to ideas? It's a really interesting question. So first of all, my job is not to have opinions about these questions, right? My job as a social scientist is to ask what are the best data and what do they tell us and try to synthesize from evidence. I think the data would tell us a couple things. Number one, there is genetically heritable component of emotional intelligence and a biological component of it, similar to cognitive ability, where you know some people are born with a heightened capacity to recognize emotions, to understand them, to manage them. And I think it also seems to be the case that it's a little bit more learnable and malleable and teachable than cognitive ability is, right? So it's pretty hard to wake up somebody who's really bad at math and say, we are going to turn you into Einstein in, in a month, right? Yes. It is more likely that you take somebody who is emotionally stunted and teach them how to recognize facial expressions. You know, teach them, for example, that there's a difference between authentic and fake smiles where you see the, the crow's feet or the wrinkles or crinkles in the corner of your eye. The smizing, as Tyra would say, in, in the real smile, but not in the fake smile. And they could study those cues. They could learn them. They could improve their ability to recognize emotions. You could teach them a bunch of strategies for managing their emotions. Like, you know, if they got really upset after a work call, you could teach them, look, there are at least two effective techniques for managing intense emotions like that. One is distraction. Go do something else that resets your mood. The other is reappraisal. Try to reframe what happened and realize maybe it's not me. It's not you. It's us. This is a property of my relationship with these people. And it's a dynamic that we have evolved into because of our personalities that's hard to undo at this point. And maybe you don't feel as bad about that as if you think that they are, you know, insensitive humans or, you know, you were delusionally optimistic, right? And you could practice those skills. You could rehearse them and get better at that aspect of emotional intelligence. And I think if we break down the skills, we can teach each of them. But I wouldn't expect somebody who's, you know, emotionally unskilled to become an emotional genius overnight either. Right. It's funny because I put it into practice with my children all day long. You know, try not to take it so personally. Try to think about what they're going through. And then when it comes to yourself. So it is an amazing time for you to have written the book, Think Again, because we are at an extremely divisive place in our country. And I think a lot of people are dealing with, certainly in California, I think, which is really all I can speak about in my friend groups or friend groups that I'm hearing about, is that people are really having trouble with friends of theirs that are unvaccinated. And I have some friends that are unvaccinated and they were anti-vaxxers before this happened. You know, they were people who don't vaccinate their children and don't believe in vaccines. So it, it wasn't that surprising to me. And then I had this conversation with a friend who is unvaccinated. And, you know, her daughter said to me, which was just like the smartest, most amazing thing ever. You know, the daughter said to me, well, we're all unvaccinated. Five little kids sitting there, six little kids sitting there. And what is wrong with my mom that she's not vaccinated? I mean, okay, that's great that you got vaccinated, but we're not. So we're all kind of equal. We're on this equal playing field. Obviously, don't want to get into mom shaming a child and saying, you know, but your mom has a choice. You kids don't have a choice. But biologically speaking, the kid is correct. <laughs> She's just one more person that's unvaccinated, one more person that absolutely can transmit the disease. I think it was maybe more of an issue before when COVID was affecting more adults, and now that the virus seems to have gotten smarter and adapted and seems equally as strong or harsh to little kids, where I don't think that was the case before. And I think maybe the virus seems to be getting stronger and smarter and figuring out how to make anyone sick. 
Anyway, I think that particularly now with all of these divisive political views, it's interesting, right, because the Internet really exacerbates all of these things, Twitter, social media, because it's just in a few characters, people just make these blanket statements and people just react super emotionally. Social media does not allow for any time for complexity of thought. And as wonderful as social media is, and as many great ideas as it's able to convey to people, it also is equally harmful because of that fact. Yeah, I think it's pretty rare that you're going to change somebody's mind on a topic like vaccines on social media. I think, to your point, we need the time and the space and the emotional range to be able to have a thoughtful conversation that doesn't immediately devolve into name-calling or shaming or any of the default responses that we see on so many platforms I think probably the most interesting conversations I've had really in the past year around COVID have been with a, one of my closest friends, actually, from elementary school, who has never vaccinated his children. And a few years ago, I swore that I would never talk to him again about vaccines because I didn't think it was good for our friendship. And after writing this whole chapter on motivational interviewing in Think Again, which happened to profile a vaccine whisperer before COVID happened, I got really worried about his kids and him, too, and his wife and thought, okay... One, I feel I have a responsibility as his friend to see if I can open his mind a little bit, not to dictate his behavior, but just get him to consider a vaccine. And then secondly, I also want to see whether I've actually learned and whether I can practice what I was trying to teach in the book. And we've had a lot of back and forth, a lot of debates. He emailed me the other day and said, is it possible that we're actually agreeing now more than we disagree? And I said, no, hell hath not frozen over. <laughs> and then we found more places to disagree. But listen, Ellen, he's not gotten a vaccine, right? He's not planning to give them to his kids. But there were two moments where I had breakthroughs in our conversation. One was when I just asked him the question, what are your odds of getting a COVID vaccine? And he said, pretty low. And I was stunned. I was like, what? They're not zero? Are you kidding me? There's a chance. And he said, of course. You weigh the costs and the benefits. And if the fatality rate was really high and the transmissibility was high, and if I were older and I weren't worried about the long-term risks of the vaccine, of course, you know, not zero. And I think that that was a breakthrough because he was willing to acknowledge that his mind wasn't completely closed. And that allowed us to have a series of conversations where he, you know, sort of recognized that sometimes he was a little slanted in favor, sort of confirmation by a style of weak studies that supported his beliefs and too dismissive of strong studies that contradicted his beliefs. And then the other big moment we had was when he sent me a study that got retracted the next day. And before it got retracted, as a social scientist, I looked at it and I said, this is like claiming one plus one equals 17. The math is flawed. And sure enough, it was. And I said, I just, I just want to review what happened here is if this study had supported the safety and efficacy of COVID vaccines, you never would have sent it to me. But you lowered your bar when it came to data that said maybe, you know, the vaccines could be risky. And he said, mm, no. <laughs> and I said, all right, let me, let me just ask you a question. Do you believe the earth is round? And he said, yeah, of course. And I said, well, how do you know? He said, well, you know, there's a lot of science. I said, well, have you inspected the science personally? I don't know. And he said, well, there are photos from space. Uh, you know what? Those could have been fake. There's a NASA conspiracy. You know, they're paying astronauts to lie. And he said, well, pretty soon private citizens are going to space. I can see it with my own eyes. I'm like, no, 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 no. We could create a trick mirror as a window. You will never really know. And I said, my worry is that the way I just kind of had this mock conversation pretending to be a flat earther, that that's how you approach the vaccine debate. And for the first time in the 36 years we've known each other, he said, I see what you mean. Rigidity of thought, which is something you talk about in the book. 
Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Tell the story about the study at Harvard with Ted Kaczynski. Ah, uh, the Unabomber story haunts me to this day. So Ted Kaczynski was enrolled in a highly unethical study in the, I think it started in the late 1950s, where this really eminent Harvard psychologist decided that we didn't understand enough about how to change people's beliefs. And he launched these studies in what he called interpersonal disputation, where these students showed up week after week, and they were told they were just going to, you know, be interviewed about their life histories and talk about their beliefs. And then they were maybe going to debate them a little bit. And what they didn't realize was there was a law student who was in cahoots with the researchers who was assigned to show up and decimate their beliefs, basically tear apart anything that they held near and dear. And they had to do this for hours under bright lights, being videotaped without contact with the outside world. And some of the students came out of this experience and said, you know, it really shook me to my core. And the one participant who seemed to react with the most hostility was Ted Kaczynski. Now, we don't know, obviously, whether this played any role in him becoming the Unabomber. I think what we can see, though, is there is a tremendous rigidity of thought if you go and read his manifesto. It's not actually the content that I found so disturbing. You know, he talks about some of the harms associated with technology, and you look at them and you say, yeah, there are. As you pointed out a few minutes ago, Alan, technology is not an unmitigated good. It can be used for evil as well as good. And we've seen a lot of harm done by technology. What's so shocking about his writing is the absolute truth that drips off of every sentence and how sure he is of his opinions. And one of the things we know is that psychologically, when people have their core beliefs threatened, they tend to respond with rigidity. It activates the amygdala, which I think Dr. Gray would tell us is the threat detection system. And that leads us to put up our mental armor and cling to things that we know are true and assert them more strongly. 
And I, I do wonder, you know, on some more depressing days, whether that experience played a role in pushing him to become more extreme and more entrenched and ultimately do something so terrible. And then the other thing that I find really interesting that I'd love for you to talk about, the messenger. It's not even the message. It's the messenger. I really believe in frequency. And I'm obsessed with what makes someone want to listen to someone's podcast from someone else's podcast, right? It's the way they sound. What makes someone want to subscribe and be a disciple of a certain politician or a certain preacher? I think frequency has so much to do with the messages we receive. And, you know, if you were to say something to me and someone else were to say the same thing, would I believe it as much? Because I like you because my ears are used to listening to you on podcasts or books on tape. So am I more receptive to your ideas when you present them as I would be, I don't know, someone else? And I just think it's how cult leaders have been able to get away with what they get away with. It's it's like the messenger and the voice and the frequency with which that voice and that message hits our brain or our ears. Do you think that plays into our belief systems? The question of messenger versus message is so critical. It's not what was said. It's whether you trusted the source of what was said. That really drives how much credibility you attach to it and and whether it influences you. And I think we're doing so much of this. I mean, this is this is one of the reasons I sat down to write Think Again is I kept seeing people say, well, I'll listen to someone because their opinions make me feel good. Like, no, that's not how you learn. You learn by listening to people because their thoughts make you think hard. And I kept seeing people kind of seal themselves in echo chambers and filter bubbles where they would surround themselves with people who agreed with their conclusions. I'm like, no, you evolve your beliefs and your thinking by trying to hang out with people who challenge your thought process. And I think that we're in a source credibility crisis right now. You know, we've obviously given many people a megaphone or at least a microphone. And it's too easy to find people, you know, who share your views and basically tune out everyone else. And I think one of the better ways to solve this, if I were running a social media platform, for example, is let's give people a credibility score in different domains. So you should listen to me much more on topics of work and psychology than when I start to talk about music or COVID or chemistry, right? Because I don't have expertise in those areas. And I don't think we're differentiating that way. I think people listen to a podcaster or a thought leader, and they assume they're equally credible on everything, when, of course, we're all smarter and less intelligent on a range of topics. I'd just love to see more nuance there. Yeah, it's a good point. Complexity of thought is just an overarching theme of the book, and enough can't be said about it. It's interesting in my business, there's a lot of creatives, but also executives that sort of have to work together. And it's an interesting dynamic for sure to have been witness to and watch evolve or devolve. For example, like showrunners in television are super, super creative people. And then they're also meant to be leaders. And they're also meant to sort of not only be leaders, but they have to sort of manage 200 people or however many people are on a set. And that's vastly different from creating drama and fiction. And if you're a super creative, great writer, you're then entrusted with the care of 200 people in a completely different capacity in which you have no experience, may not even want to do. It's interesting the way that Hollywood sort of bridges 
those kinds of work situations and melds these two things, emotional creativity and then sort of a technical capacity to manage people. I mean, they have support systems on either side, but it really all falls on them if any one of those systems falls short. And I imagine that to be one of the most challenging jobs in my line of work. I think it's a more extreme version of a problem that we see in a lot of fields. I think that the original term for it in sociology was the Peter principle. Have you come across this before? No. It's one of my favorite ideas. So the sociologist Lawrence Peter coined the, this pattern where if you're good at your job, you get promoted and you keep getting promoted until you're not good enough to get promoted anymore, but you're not bad enough to get fired either. And his observation was, we all get promoted to our levels of incompetence in workplaces. Because uh, <laughs> if you're really good, you keep rising. And then when you're not quite good enough, you get stuck. And there's some new research by Alan Benson and colleagues, which basically says, look, <laughs> when somebody's really good at a role, that doesn't always mean they need to advance to another role. What they're looking for usually is a bump in status and a bump in salary as well. What if we gave them a fancier title and paid them more, but let them keep doing their current job? And I think that could be relevant in some parts of Hollywood. I think you're right. They do do that to some extent. They give people a producer credit and they may give you a little bit more money or in, in many cases they don't. They just give you a title. And so, you know, that checks the ego box and many people are sort of okay with that. Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. While we're on Hollywood, I have questions for you. Sure, please. One I'm very curious about is I have been a superhero fan for a long time. And whenever people ask me what my favorite Marvel movie is, I tell them Daredevil. And I feel like it's been massively underrated. And I know you're in it. And I want to know why don't people see in it what I see in it? You have amazing vision because I was in it for about three seconds. <laughs> um, like literally, literally people joke around and say, if you blink, you'll miss me. But literally, like if you blink, you'll miss me in that film. But I love that you know that. You know, I don't know. I mean, I do have theories. I think people respond to actors in different roles. I mean, you know, Goodwill Hunting, people love Ben in that movie. I mean, he's incredible in that movie. And then you see him in Daredevil and not so much. It's like we hang on to archetypes of who we believe is good in a role or looks like that role and who we believe doesn't. And so I think that maybe people didn't necessarily see Ben as a superhero. Superheroes, you know, those kind of movies were just really starting to get made, right? Yeah. And wasn't as big a thing as it was now. You had other choices of like fantastic dramas or, you know, Scorsese movies and, you know, quote unquote real cinema. I'm not judging <laughs> the superhero movies at all. I love them and I take my kids to them and I think all the women in them do a fantastic job. But I think there were more choices then than there are now. So I think that maybe if that movie were made now, it would do better. Fascinating. I really want everyone to watch the rain scene in particular, where all of a sudden Daredevil goes from being blind to being able to see through some version of echolocation. I'm like, that is amazing. But <laughs> okay, before I turn the mic back over to you, one other thing I was I was intrigued by is I haven't spent nearly as much time on, on a set as you have, but I've done a little bit of research and podcasting with creative teams in, in Hollywood. And I think one of the hardest things about acting is playing the same role and yet rethinking it. And you're one of the few people uh, who has, you know, who's been front and center for a decade and a half playing one character. 
How do you evolve that? How do you keep making it new? How do you rethink it without losing the essence of what people love? Well, it's a great question. And some of it is my deliberate doing. And some of it is just really me evolving over time, right? Like when I started the show, I wasn't a mother, you know, and then I had one child, then I had a second child, then I had a third child, you know, I was with my partner at the time before the show, but we got married and, you know, the relationship was new. And, you know, then we're 10 years in and now we're 15 years in. So there's just a natural evolution that has come with me that, of course, I bring myself to that role. It's just really me dressed up in scrubs. But to be honest, that is one of the hardest things. And of course, I've had to reconcile and practice against rigidity of thought. And I've spoken about this publicly in articles where it's a very common practice in Hollywood that you should never stay on a TV show too long and you should leave before you get typecast in a role and you should go pursue other things. And it's absolute madness that you should go chase trophies and you should chase the attention and you have to keep your name hot and you, you know you have to stay out there in a creative capacity so people don't lose respect for you creatively. So that's a choice that most actors make. It's really, really goes against everything that Hollywood stands for to stay on a show for so long. And except the fact that you're not going to get attention, you'll make more money, which will make more sense in the end if you want to have a family and, and money is important to you and you equate money with power, which you know, I do. I think, you know, my ego, obviously, I like not having to be at the whim of other people being in control of my destiny, right? People being able to say, well, we don't want you for this. We don't want you for this. And I'm sure that being cut out of so many movies early in my career helped shape my decision making, right? Because I thought mm -hmm. I never want to be in this situation again. I really want to have control over my own destiny. So some things are the best things that never happen. And ultimately, I think that's good because I, I've seen a lot of attention and fame and all of that can destroy a person. And inflating your ego consistently and constantly chasing that ego boost and that hype, in my opinion, to me, is not a healthy way to live. I choose not to try to get the highs from attention or I would prefer just to like keep my head down and practice an exercise of can I just be a day-to-day -day actor and just make money and just be present for my kids? Can I resist chasing fame and the next project and the next project for my ego? I sort of demand excellence for myself, which sounds kind of crazy to say because I've been on one TV show for, you know, <laughs> 18 seasons and people would say, what? What do you mean you demand excellence? Like you've been on the same network soap opera. Like that's not excellence in terms of like the film world or, you know, acting careers. But I demand that what we're doing is the best that it can be. And if I see other people getting complacent and I feel like other people are phoning it in or I feel like writers are rigid in their thought and are consistently writing the same style, actors are rigid in their practice and are acting in the same manner, I'm constantly saying, snap out of it. We don't have to write this character this way. We don't have to act this scene this way. I understand that the writers have put everything in caps and put four exclamation marks at the end of the sentence. I personally would choose to say that line as understated as I can because the writers have told you how to act it. I'm immediately going to go against what they've told me to do to make it more interesting. So if the words are saying what to do and then they're putting it in caps and telling you how to act it, 
the audience doesn't really have to think. There's no mystery there. It's very not interesting in my opinion. I instinctively do the exact opposite because I think that the audience will find that a little bit more interesting. Like, wait, she's saying she's so excited to go to the birthday party, but she's saying it as if she's not excited. Is she excited <laughs> or is she not excited? So I guess the truth is, is I've really been putting into practice, think again, instinctively, intuitively. I've been doing it for a long time. I'm really glad you said what you just did, because when you were talking about wanting control, I was thinking, why are you equating that with ego? That is you striving for excellence and also maintaining your freedom. And those are two things that women have had to push a lot harder for than men in the professional world since, I don't know, forever. Um, and so I think, you know, that it's, it seems like an unjust narrative that if you want control over your work and your life, that that's because you're hungry for the attention or the power, as opposed to saying, I'm doing this because I care about having the highest quality standards and I also want to protect my own autonomy. So I'm glad you updated that as opposed to just leaving it at ego. But it does also go back to what you said earlier, which is like, it's how you say it, right? It's not what you say, it's how you say it. Because, you know, I'm super passionate. I'm a really emotional person, obviously. And that gets in the way. And I really have to learn how to temper it. Because very often when women are critical or when women demand excellence, you know, I watched male directors for 15 seasons come in and scream and yell and tell us what to do and throw their hands up. And, you know, until recently, a few years ago, no one ever started to say, listen, that behavior is not cool at all. You know, and that goes into workplace environment and all of that. But when women demand excellence or get frustrated with a scene or get frustrated that it could be better, we're, of course, seen as bossy or bullies or bitches or, you know, name any of the other adjectives you can put in front of a woman's name when she has conviction and passion and demanding excellences. There's definitely a double standard there. And I do it myself. I'm guilty of all of these things myself, too. So we're all a work in progress. <laughs> yeah, we are. And I thank you for your body of work because <laughs> I, for one, like you, am not big on therapy. I prefer to talk to psychologists, to talk to psychiatrists, to read their books about how the brain works and how people think. That, to me, is more interesting. And I get a tremendous amount of pleasure from your work, your podcasts, your books. I enjoyed this time so much, and I'm really grateful for your body of work and for you giving me an hour of your time today. Oh, thank you, Alan. I really appreciate that. Can we do this again? I would love to. That sounds like a blast. Yeah, I feel like there's a lot more ground to cover. And we haven't even gotten to the Laura Tiedens et al. meta-analysis, the study of, what, 63 studies showing that assertive women face a backlash for violating gender stereotypes, exactly mm. as you just described. Whereas men, you know what? We bark in order or we show dominance. People are like, yeah, he's supposed to be results-oriented and ambitious <laughs> and controlling and an asshole. Right. It's totally acceptable. Oh, so frustrating. Uh, yes, I would love to do this again. I look forward to it. Okay, great. To be continued. Adam Grant, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. 